speed up, but look on the ASA. My gosh, they're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and I'm very excited to finally bring this interview to you a week after originally scheduled. Uh, on the line, I have Mr. Mark O'Connell, who I'll bring in in just a second. But I just want to say thanks again to everyone for listening in to last week's show. Uh, due to some technical glitches, we put it together quite last minute. Um, Sean Cahill was excellent coming on at the very, very last minute to answer listener questions along with myself and Dan. And it went down really, really well. Previously, I'd spoken to David Marler, which again got a fantastic reception. More and more of you coming on board over the month of February. Uh, it's been it's been great to speak to so many new people and new listeners as well. This is the perfect interview to follow on to that. As we found out, David had procured Dr. G. Allen Hynek's files amongst the Centre for UFO Studies files and is working his way through digitising them. Uh, on the show with me today is a man who spent time going through these files himself, preparing to write the biography of Dr. Hynek. Uh, called Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. It is author, researcher and presenter on Discovery's, Discovery Plus, his show, UFO Witness, Mark O'Connell. Mark, how are we today? Doing good, Andy. How are you? I am very, very well. And I'm going to say thanks live on the show. I say live, you know, it's recorded. But uh, Mark is my first guest. It's, uh, we're recording via Zencaster, so I'm trying some new tech, as the Patreons may have found out on the, the AMA myself and Dan done the other day. So hopefully this one goes all well and I don't have a full night of editing ahead of me. I can get the shows out a lot quicker. And hopefully the, the quality is that bit more improved as well. Um, listen, Mark, this was not meant to be last week. Uh, we tried several times at different times of the day. You were very good at running around your house for me as well, <laughs> trying to get a, a better signal. But we look to have fixed those issues anyway. Dr. Heineck. Sure so. Yeah, no, it looks good. It sounds good as well. Dr. Heineck is someone that I've uh, neglected almost on the podcast, not talking about him for some time. Um, I've really enjoyed watching the Project Blue Book series, of course, heavily dramatised. Very much uh, almost modern the X Files, if you want to call it that, on the on sci-fi here in the UK. But Dr. Heineck himself is very much a real person with a, an equally fascinating story. And there's not many better people to speak to about him than yourself. But before we get to the book and talking about Dr. Heineck, I just want you to tell the listeners, what's your background, Mark, that led you to be so involved with UFOs? I am totally unqualified for this. <laughs> I'll just tell, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I'm really too, not I'm really not stretching the truth there. Um no, I I've been fascinated by UFOs and and outer space and aliens and science fiction all my life. My earliest conscious memory was when I was about 3 years old in 1963. Um my mom was watching a TV show called The Outer Limits which was this old black and white anthology science fiction series. Um, 
And she was watching the pilot episode. I, I never knew my mom was into science fiction or monsters, but this alien came on the TV screen, this glowing white energy being with no face, just two little dark circles for eyes, scared the living daylights out of me. And I, I remember running upstairs and hiding around the corner and telling my mom, you know, that I'm not coming out until the monster goes away. Um, and so finally, you know, an hour later, the monster finally went away. So I finally came out from behind the, from behind the corner. So that's for, so, for some reason, that terrifying moment um, just got me totally fascinated with aliens and space and science fiction. It just, it really did a number on me. But powerful enough that it stuck with you and, and led you to have the career that you've had as well. Yeah. Do, do you consider yourself a bit of a, a geek or a guy that's into sci-fi? Or, I mean, you're sitting wearing a T-shirt that says space on it for as much as I can. Space Invaders. That probably <laughs> answers my question then. But it, is it fair it to should. say you're a bit of a geek? Yeah. Oh, I've been a total science fiction geek all my life. So, so after The Outer Limits at age three, the next real TV milestone was Star Trek, which premiered in 1966. So I was about six years old then. And I definitely remember Star Trek was on NBC on Thursday nights from 6.30 to 7.30. Well, that was a school night for me. So my bedtime was 7 o'clock, which sounds ridiculous now that I think about it. But my bedtime was 7 o'clock. And I can remember just pleading with my mom. Of course, you always go to mom because she's the softy. I remember pleading with my mom to let me stay up that extra half an hour on Thursday nights just so I could see Star Trek. So yeah, I had it pretty bad. And we'll get to talking about more about later on how uh, your life ended up quite heavily involved in Star Trek in a, a very cool and very spectacular way as well. I'd like to ask, did you have any sightings growing up yourself? Anything you saw in the sky? Anything at all? I'm really glad you asked that because something really interesting just came up this morning. I'm I'm one of seven siblings in my family. So I have six brothers and sisters. And I don't know how we got on this topic, but in our family group chat online this morning, we all started talking about having recurring childhood nightmares about alien invasions. And in my case... It was, the dream was, I'd go out onto the back steps of our house, and we had a huge backyard with a huge open sky. And and in my dream, I'd go out on the back steps and look up in the sky, and the sky was just filled with thousands of invading spaceships. Except they didn't look like spaceships. They looked like, you know how you draw little lightning bolts when you're a kid, that sort of jagged Z shape? That's what they looked like. And the sky was just full of them, and they were all heading towards me. And the really scary part of the nightmare was I never knew if they were coming after the whole world or just me because they were headed, you know, right in my direction. So it turns out that out of seven siblings, at least five of us have had similar childhood nightmares about the sky being filled with alien spaceships. Um, And in some of the cases, it was they actually saw a tornado I just wanted to look at this again, if you don't mind. No, please. Um, A tornado. Like my brother wrote, my tornado dreams often include looking up the stairway from the family room in the basement, seeing a stark silhouette of dad in the open doorway, watching a green sky towards the southwest. That's kind of creepy. My sister wrote, I'm watching multiple tornadoes in the distance bearing down. I never actually have them arrive where I am. 
to me, tornado equals UFO. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if my brothers and sisters would read it that way, but it seems I've got this kind of creepy feeling today that so many of my siblings had this weird recurring childhood nightmare that involved either spaceships or tornadoes. And in one of them, one of my brothers mentioned Bigfoot showed up in his nightmare too. So I don't know what's going on there, but I think that's the closest maybe that I've come to seeing something is that maybe there's something in my distant, distant memory that kept coming back as that nightmare. I don't know. Potentially. I mean, I would say as well, your your choice of science fiction from a young age potentially has been uh, given <laughs> your imagination something to think about in your subconscious as well. That's, but that, that's really that's cool. Possible. <laughs> I like that. Um, now, listen, you. Dr. Heineck, uh, like I say, is someone we're going to be discussing on the podcast. Um, I can't imagine many of the listeners will not know or have at least heard of, of Dr. J. Allen Heineck themselves, especially if they're listening to this podcast. But do you mind giving us a bit of an overview of who the man was? J. Allen Heineck was born in 1910 in Chicago, and he he became an astrophysicist and a college professor, and he lived a very mild-mannered, quiet life, teaching astronomy at a college in Ohio. And in the 1940s, late 1940s, he was visited at the university by a couple of guys from the U.S. Air Force who worked at Wright-Patterson Airfield. Well, it was just Wright Field at the time, uh, just down the highway from where Heineck was teaching because they needed an astronomer, a legitimate astronomer, um, to help them with this UFO problem they had. All of a sudden, in the late 1940s, the Air Force was starting to collect dozens and hundreds of UFO reports from around the country, and they had no idea what to do with them. They tried; they were trying desperately to explain them away because they just wanted them to just, they wanted the problem to just go away. And so they went to the nearest astronomer they could find, which just happened to be J. Allen Hynek. So by a pure fluke, Dr. Heineck becomes not just an astronomy professor, but now a UFO researcher for the U.S. Air Force. And he continued in that capacity with the Air Force for almost 20 years. So a big, big part of his life. So that was one of the things that interested me in writing his story was the fact that, that he had these parallel careers. He was a scientist, he was an educator, and he was a UFO researcher. And I was just really curious to find out how those three different threads kind of interacted over the course of his life and his career. It sounds natural for those to potentially interact, but especially in modern times, if you want to look at Neil deGrasse Tyson as someone who I used to really admire, and I still do for a lot of his work, but a lot of his opinion when it comes to you know UFOs, alien races, you know potential other entities, beings, as crazy as it all is to talk about, he just seems so dismissive of the topic, and that's really disappointing for someone who is clearly incredibly intelligent and you know charismatic, and would be a great person to have a reasoned and rational debate on the subject. So it is a lot more unusual for someone like Dr. Heineck with his background to get as involved as he eventually did as well. Um, he also, am I right in saying Dr. Heineck was the man who discovered why or how stars twinkle? Have I got that right? Well, yeah, he was actually hired by the Air Force in the late 1940s. This was a period of time when he was doing a lot of consulting work for the Air Force, not just the UFO work, but some other pure science as well. So he did a study of how stars twinkle, 
because the Air, Air Force was trying to find a way for pilots to be able to instantly identify whether a light in the sky was a twinkling star or perhaps um, an antagonistic enemy aircraft moving in the sky. So Hynek's study was to try to figure out the difference between a twinkle and an actual movement of the light. So it seems like a really crazy thing for the Air Force to want to be studying. But if you think of it in terms of helping fighter pilots to interpret what they're seeing on a night flight, then it makes perfect sense. And that's what Hynek did. It just so happened that eventually that knowledge that Hynek gained came into play in his UFO research too, because he would often have to decide, is this unexplained object just a star or, or an, an astronomical, a known astronomical phenomenon, or is it actually a moving object that we don't understand? So that was one of those points where the two inter- the, those two careers just really intersected tightly. And when you think of the timing as well, late 40s, 50s, even into the 60s, this was that the World War Two wasn't that long in the memory. You know, it was still very fresh and tensions were high. The Cold War was around the corner, then obviously came into being. So the Air Force, no doubt, were, were pretty paranoid in a lot of ways. So you can see why they wanted that, that tiny, minute detail. And Dr. Hynek certainly filled a gap for them. So Dr. Hynek himself, Mark, must have been someone that you admired and looked up to for you to eventually write a biography about him. Do you remember your first introduction to Dr. Hynek? Well, I read a lot of UFO books in my high school and college years. I mean, I still do. But that was when I first started reading them and probably was in high school. Um, So I read about Dr. Hynek. What I usually associated him with, and I think a lot of people do as well, was the infamous swamp gas case in Michigan in 1966. And I I didn't know a whole lot more about him. So it's not like I've always dreamt of writing about Dr. Hynek. Um, It just so happened that I was writing a UFO blog, started about 10 years ago, and I discovered that Dr. Hynek, he was already passed away. He died in in 1986. But I discovered that Dr. Hynek had formed a UFO research group, CUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, that was still in existence in Chicago, very close to where I lived at the time. So I started visiting CUFOS, which is actually just someone's basement. Um, I started visiting Kufos just to find things to write about in my blog. And at one point, the the scientific director of Kufos, Mark Rodiger, said, hey, Mark, you know, we've always been looking for someone to write the definitive account of Dr. Hynek's career. And I really like your writing in your blog. Would you be interested? And I didn't hesitate for a second. I, Absolutely. Yes, I would love to. So that's when I really started to learn all about who Dr. Hynek was, because all of a sudden, I was granted access to all of Hynek's personal files, his research files, everything they had at Kufos. Um, I was I was basically given, you know, permission to dig through any anything I wanted uh, in in you know in the development of this biography of him. Something that I was, I think it was even on your blog potentially or in the, the introduction to the book. Uh, it talks about when he was born, uh, Halley's Comet was literally about to pass the Earth. Um, which obviously comes around every, correct me, is it, is it 50, 60 years? 76, I believe. 76, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and he died just as it had left as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's a really cool little happenstance. Um, yeah, and, and he used to predict to friends that he would die in 1986 when Halley's Comet came back. 
And his friends would tell him, oh, don't be so, you know, don't be so depressing. Well, it turned out he was absolutely right. It was, uh, well, I say it was, it wasn't the worst year. I was born that year as well. And, and here I am talking, <laughs> talking about Dr. Heineck on a podcast some 34 years later. So well, there's some continuity for you. I like that. He, he done something right. And that, that's, that's <laughs> a legacy. And we're going to talk about that legacy now, obviously. I just want to quickly mention though, uh, and before we get into you writing the book or as you were researching it, you talk about his career as an astrophysicist. It was very accomplished. Is that something that seems almost forgotten given what he went on to be involved in? Yeah, unfortunately. And that was the first decision I made uh, when I started working on the book was I didn't want the book to just be about his UFO work. I wanted the book to profile his scientific work as well. And I and I'm really glad I made that decision because it turns out Heineck he he actually did achieve a certain amount of fame for his work as an astronomer. He did some very important work. He did some real breakthrough work. He discovered a vast number of uh, nova, supernovas in the galaxy. That was something nobody had done before. He was tapped to design and implement the world's first global satellite tracking network in anticipation of the United States launching the first satellite, the first artificial satellite, which, of course, we failed at because the Russians launched Sputnik first. But once Sputnik was launched... It was Hynek's global tracking system that kept track of Sputnik. So, so even though you know it wasn't used for initially for what it was he thought it would be used for, it was actually used for something really significant. So, yeah, Hynek has a whole string of really amazing accomplishments as an astronomer, and I felt very fortunate that I was able to make that a big part of his story as well. In writing the book, what did you learn about Dr. Hynek that surprised you the most? There were, there were a couple of things. Number one, what we've just been talking about, just, just the amazing number of breakthrough uh, projects he worked on during his career as an astronomer. That was a big surprise to me. Another big surprise was that he was very fascinated with some other odd paranormal phenomenon like out-of-body experiences and interdimensional beings. He had, he had this really interesting, and that sort of plays into a, a I don't know if he ever would have called himself a spiritual person, but he was interested in some very spiritual ideas like the, the philosophies of the Rosicrucians and things like that. So that was another surprise, this sort of spiritual side to him. But the big surprise, I think, was, again, I mentioned before, the, the infamous swamp gas case in Michigan in 1966. That was an event that really, um, really defined Dr. Hynek's career in a lot of ways, he was he was pushed into a very bad situation where basically no matter what he did he would have infuriated people and he would have been just treated like public enemy number 1 no matter what he decided so he was really pushed into a corner into a position he didn't want to be in uh where a lot of people felt that he was lying for the air force uh and a lot of people were really angry at him so that was the big, big surprise, was to find out how bad a moment that was for Dr. Hynek and to discover, once I started interviewing people uh, about the history of UFOs and Hynek's work, how many people, even now, still are furious with Dr. Hynek for the way he handled that case. There are can still talk, a lot of people. Can you talk about the details of that case? 
Okay. I get my, my take on this is a little unpopular with some UFO folks I know. So I'll just warn you that right off the bat. That's fine. So March 1966, there's a whole series of UFO sightings in Southern Michigan. For about two weeks, law enforcement officers out on night patrol keep seeing strange lights in the sky and trying to chase them down unsuccessfully. Then one night, um, on a farmhouse in rural Michigan, uh, the farmer hears a disturbance in the sw- swamp outside his house. He and his son go down to investigate, and they see the, these glowing lights floating around in the swamp. Well, the, the family call the police. The police show up. They go tromping through the swamp. They, they all see the lights, but they can never actually find out where the lights are coming from. So it's left as a big mystery. The very next night, about... 60 or 70 miles away, I believe, at a small college in Michigan, um, a whole bunch of uh, women uh, in the women's dorm at the college see the same thing. They see these yellow, green, red, and white floating lights in the campus arboretum across the street from their dormitory. So they bring, they call in the, the civil defense agent, the cops show up, and again, it's like everybody sees the lights, but nobody can get close to them. Nobody can see what they actually are. So it's just like everyone's just making wild guesses as, as to what they're actually seeing, but everybody's thinking UFO. So because this has gone on for some period of time, it, it becomes a national news story. And the Air Force didn't want to touch it because there were just there were too many witnesses. It was going to be really hard to explain. The Air Force didn't want to have anything to do with it. But because it was such a huge news story, the Project Blue Book was basically forced to send Dr. Hynek to Michigan to investigate the case and to come up with a natural explanation. So Hynek was literally under orders to explain this away as something perfectly natural and, and normal. So what a terrible position to be put into because Heineck is a scientist. He doesn't want to prejudge the case. He wants to go to Michigan and interview people and look at the sighting, look at where the sightings occurred and look for clues, look for evidence, which he tries to do. He's in Michigan for three days. He shows up on Tuesday. He's there until Friday. Friday, the Air Force forces him to hold a news conference because the news story, with every passing day, the news story just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more embarrassing for the Air Force. So they finally force Heineck to hold a press conference on that Friday after he's been in Michigan for almost four days. And he says, well, I couldn't swear to it in a court of law, but, <laughs> and that's, okay, so that's his, that's his preamble. He couldn't swear to it in a court of law, but what all of the witnesses describe could possibly be swamp gas, which is something that forms when rotting vegetation in a marshy, swampy area uh, warms up in the springtime and it, it spontaneously combusts into this glowing bubble of flame. So Heineck is saying, I think it's very possible that these people saw swamp gas. Well, that's all anybody needed to hear. All the reporters go rushing back to their phones to call in the story. And the story is that the Air Force's top UFO expert, just called the people of Michigan a bunch of idiots because they don't they can't tell a UFO from swamp gas. So Heineck was just instantly became public enemy number one. The people who believed in UFOs were furious with him for saying it was swamp gas. Um, and the people who didn't believe in UFOs were just furious with him because he 
dragged the whole thing out so long that they couldn't keep a lid on the story. So everybody hated Heineck at the end of that week. It was the worst moment of his career. And yet, and yet, that moment made Heineck a UFO superstar. And, Go and figure. That moment, yeah, and that moment was reflected. I mean, Will Smith and Men in Black, that's one of the famous moments early in that film. He talks about when he's doing the, you know, mind wipe thing. Oh, yeah, the neuralizer. People, <laughs> yeah, the neuralizer, yeah. When he tells them, oh, yeah, it was a swamp gas reflected off the oh, light yeah. of Venus. And that's, <laughs> that's weaved throughout the whole film. And I don't doubt that's exactly where that's come from. The Blue Book Files, that explanation, because it seems so ridiculous. But in the sense that we're, we're not calling something aliens or a spaceship or a flying saucer, it still sounds ridiculous that it was potentially swamp gas. I well, I don't know if, if I made a mistake there, Mark, but I didn't quite pick up what your controversial take was on that. So oh, you said to, my, yeah, contra- that- my controversial take was that under the circumstances, based on everything that Heineck was dealing with, because I did a lot of research into those. Okay, let me backtrack a little bit. I've seen it. I've seen it recorded in some places that Dr. Heineck arrived in Michigan and within 15 minutes, he held a press conference and said it was swamp gas. So I, so my first issue was, no, there were actually, he was actually there from Tuesday to Friday. That's almost a whole week. What did he do during those days? So I did a lot of research into, I t- retraced Heineck's steps literally during those four days to find out who he talked to, when he talked to them, what the subject of the conversation was. And based on all of that research, my conclusion was that Heineck actually said the exact right thing at that press conference, because at that moment, all the only information he had pointed to the possibility that it was swamp gas. And all he ever said was that it was possibly swamp gas. And a lot of people have been angry at me because of that, because I'm sort of, they think I'm protecting Heineck because they really believe that he was just lying to cover the Air Force's asses, et cetera. So, so there's a difference of opinion there. But um, I, I think I'm justified in saying he said the right thing. But here's the twist to the story. Can I give you a twist? Please do. Here's the twist. In preparing our TV show, UFO Witness, we did one of the episodes about the Michigan swamp gas case. And I really, really wanted to get an interview with Ron Manor. Now, I, I mentioned the first real sighting was at this farm uh, in, in southern Michigan. Well, the farmer, um, the farmer and his son went out to look at the lights. Well, the, the farmer, Frank Manor, has passed away long ago. But the son, Ron Manor, is still alive. And I tracked him down. He's still living in the same area in southern Michigan. I tracked him down and got him on the phone. And he he was very reluctant to talk about it because, you know, his family got burned badly by the media. They were ridiculed. uh, You know, they were chastised. They were treated badly. So he's never really wanted to talk about this. Well, I get him on the phone, and he's still very reluctant. But I talked to him a while, and finally he says, I'll tell you one thing, Mark. He said, I don't want to call my dad a liar because his dad said it was a spaceship. He said, he said, when my dad called it a spaceship, he's like, it wasn't. It was not a spaceship. But he said, here's the other thing. I know for a fact it wasn't swamp gas either. Because he said, I've gone hunting in pretty much every bog in southern Michigan. And he said, I've seen many, many uh, swamp gas bubbles floating in the swamp. 
I know what they look like. And he said, the thing we saw did not look like swamp gas. So that was a huge, huge mind blower for me to have Ron Manor say, it's, it wasn't a spaceship, but it also wasn't swamp gas. Because that brings up the, well, then what, what was it? If, it? if the two prevailing theories have just been dismissed by one of the eyewitnesses, then boom, what have you got? And I wish we had had more time in that episode to really delve into that. I would love to go back and talk to Ron Manor some more and find out more about that because that was a big, big deal that he that he copped to there. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I we're going to get on to talk about UFO witnesses specifically as well, but I'll let the listeners have in their own mind a picture of what that may or may not have been. I'm sure people straight away start thinking about orbs, and orbs aren't necessarily my most favorite thing to talk about. In the <laughs> Mine either. But I, I do have Ryan Bledsoe coming on the podcast very soon, whose family probably are the most famous experiences of that sort of thing in the uh, world. Um, uh. So he should be on in the next few weeks. And I'll be asking him to not convince, because that's not his job to convince me, but talk to me more about why orbs are so fascinating. And I know so many listeners share pictures and videos, and they're just so very, very controversial. So that that's a possibility. But yeah, that that is quite cool here. It wasn't this mundane you know explanation but it wasn't the other one that you think but there's so many other cool things it could have been the that that's a really cool case do you have any others in researching or writing the book um that you found like the most fascinating encounters or any stories of dr heinix and his time investigating well, my, my two favorite stories, uh, one of them actually got cut out of the book, unfortunately. That was the Kelly Hopkinsville uh, event in the 1950s when the farm, again, another farm family in an isolated farmhouse. In this case, they're terrorized by these weird little creatures that keep approaching the house and trying to get through the windows and uh, and these farmers, you know, they're loaded up with their with their guns, and they're they're taking shots at the aliens. And the aliens just sort of they flip around backwards, and then they just get up and come right back. That's a fascinating case. It's it's never been fully explained by anybody. The witnesses have always stuck with their story. I mean, most of them have passed away. The eyewitnesses have passed away, but they've all stuck with their story. I've always been fascinated by that case. And Heineck was fascinated with it, too. One of the reasons I cut it from the book was because Heineck wasn't directly involved in the investigation. He didn't come on board until, I think, a year or two after the event when he sort of got involved in it. But So that's one. The second one is the Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction of uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. That was in 1973. That case has a special place in my heart because... Um, so I was 13 when that took place in 1973. And that was the first I had been write, reading UFO books, you know, for years at that point. But this was the first time that an actual UFO event was taking place like in real time. And they were talking about it on the news and they were writing about it in the newspaper. And it was like something that really just happened. And that really brought the phenomenon home for me. That was the moment at which I really started thinking. It started to come off the pages of all those books and become a real, real thing to me. I interviewed Calvin Parker, it seems like a lifetime ago now, but uh, back in, back last summer, and it was great to hear him tell his story, and, and that's very much what I let him do at the time, because it's a very well-known story, and it was really good of him, especially in his advanced years, to come on to the podcast and give me so much time, and I almost just let him sit back and, and retell the story, which he does so well. Uh-huh. What what are your thoughts, and then also what, what was Dr. Heineck thinking then on 
the Calvin Parker case because it sounds incredible. There's a lot of detail in there. There, there was a long time where Calvin, Mr. Parker himself, didn't talk about it. Uh, and really interestingly, his wife, uh, who, who he's with currently, did not know about it until they were at a funeral of a mutual friend. And he had signed the, the guest book. And one of the other guests of the funeral saw his name written in the book and approached him and asked him, are you Calvin Parker that was you know, basically abducted by aliens all those decades ago? And his wife was like, what? And obviously Calvin was like, yeah, that was me, but I don't really talk about it. And it took some time for him to go on and speak to his wife about it from you know, from what he was saying, and that's how he got back involved in the topic again. But what, what are your thoughts on what happened to Calvin and Charlie Hickson? Oh, what a great question. I I think that I think that something real and extraordinary happened to the two men. There are so many fascinating details to that story that that make that make it believable to me. One and one of them, this may seem like a minor detail, but it's it's a it's a recurring theme in many UFO cases that the UFO when the witness first sees the UFO, it's approaching and then landing, right? But then at the end of the experience, the UFO rarely gets up and flies away again. More often than not, the UFO just sort of disintegrates. It disappears from view really quickly. Or it zooms away so quickly that it looks like it's just disappeared. And that's what happened with the, the Parker and Hickson case. The, they, they, they saw a blue glow. They heard a strange noise. They turned around from where they were fishing, and they saw this blue, this egg-shaped object with these blue lights on it sort of settling a foot or two above the ground. Then when the experience was over, that object just sort of disappeared in a flash. So that's a fascinating UFO detail that I would love to be able to research someday. Why do they sort of approach so slowly and then leave so quickly or instantaneously? That's that's a weird detail of that case. Those are the kinds of things that really get me excited about a case. And well, plus just the look of the creatures that took Calvin and yeah. and Charlie aboard the craft. The look of those creatures was so crazy. Um, you know, the pointy nose, the pointy ears, the crab claws for hands. Nobody can make that up. Come on, nobody can make up a creature like that. It's just ridiculous. But then when I, again, when I researched it for the book, then I started learning more and more details, like the fact that there were other strange sightings in that area yeah, around was, that yeah. same time frame. It wasn't just the Parker and Hickson uh, event that, that defined that. So yeah, lots of really amazing things about that case. Um, and we interviewed Calvin also for UFO Witness and... And you're right, to hear the story coming from his mouth is really a powerful experience. Yeah, I think, and you, you can't you can't put your house on it and you can't turn around and say, he sounds believable, so it's true, because there are a lot of very charismatic, believable charlatans involved in this topic and in this subject <laughs> yeah. uh, that make a, make a lot of money out of it as well. Very few, but, you know, we, we know who those people are. Calvin, for me, it, it just has a believability about, how he tells the story it's all there's a reluctance to it um he's not made a a ton of money out of this i would say any money he has made has been minimal um he didn't want this to happen he very much talks about it as an experience he would rather didn't happen um and obviously him and him and charlie hickson grew apart as time went on and you know never spoke about it he learned about uh, charlie's death a while after it happened but um 
Jason Gleaves and Philip Mantle. I interviewed both of those British researchers. Um, they have written so, some books on it. Uh, Philip Mantle has with with Calvin as well, and there's some some new versions of those coming out. So if people are interested in the story, check out UFO Witnesses episode. Um, there's a, there's numerous documentaries. There's one free called The Pascagoula Incident or Pascagoula Encounter on Amazon Prime. And then, of course, there's there's a whole host of other things out there as well. But it is a really fascinating story. Moving forward then, something I, I don't talk about, funnily enough, too many older incidents, just because it's been so long. And interestingly, quite a few of the ones you've talked about here ha- contain the line that most of the witnesses have passed away. You know, and that's just the case with so many of these cases and a lot of what Dr. Hynek uh, was involved in as well. Even looking back at Roswell, we still talk about it, but it's been, you know, we're not too far off of the 100th anniversary of that, which is <laughs> yeah. scary to think about. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a really weird one. How do you think Dr. Hynek would have fit in 2021? And I ask that from a point of view of, for me, 2017, a lot of ufology changed. Um, for good or for bad, for right or for wrong, uh, with TTSA, which we're going to discuss a little bit later, um, Lou Elizondo, those videos dropping. Some people chose to, I think, follow a different path with ufology. And I suppose one I've went down, where these incidents are happening now. They're happening all over. There's military witnesses, there's official government footage, all that sort of stuff. Stuff we never thought we potentially would get, get coming out. And some have chosen to go down the route of TTSA is all a big conspiracy, or was. I mean, there may be a little bit of fuel to that, given recent events. Yeah. But what Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon got involved in ha- has been quite incredible, in, in my opinion. Do you think Dr. Hynek would have would have stuck to have guns in that kind of old-school uf- ufology style? Or do you think he would have liked to have seen what's happened in the last few years in ufology? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, the thing about Dr. Hynek was he would only go as far as the evidence would take him, and he would never go a step further than that. So I think that he would, I think he would be engaged in what's going on in, in ufology today. But I, I think that he would be. Um, he wouldn't. He wouldn't necessarily be drawing any conclu- conclusions from anything that he sees, sees or hears right now. He would still be keeping an open mind, and he would consider all of all of these uh, incidents and experiences and and evidence. No proof, but evidence um, that he. I'm sure he would find them all fascinating. And and you know, the Heineck's bottom line was always: this is worthy of scientific investigation. And I think, if anything, current events in ufology would make him just feel even stronger than before that, yes, if now isn't the time, when is? This deserves a rigorous scientific examination. And, you know, he had, a, he had a saying about how he said, meteorologists can't study a tornado in the laboratory, but they can study the after effects of a tornado out in the field. And he said, ufology is very similar to that. We can't analyze a UFO in the laboratory, but we can study the aftermath. We can study the effects of what's happened when a UFO appears. And I think there's plenty going on today that would that would excite Heineck. I mean, especially the case I'm super excited about right now is that the airliner last week flying over New Mexico and the, yeah. the missile-shaped object that flew over the airplane. I think I think that story's got legs. I think I think we're going to be talking about that for a while because 
For me, it's exciting because it has so many parallels to the Charles Witted case from 1949. Same thing, passenger airliner gets buzzed in very close proximity by a rocket-shaped or a missile-shaped object that can't be explained. This is just exactly like what happened just this past week in the skies over New Mexico. I'm super excited about that case. Yeah, that, that's really interesting you brought that one up because obviously something that was picked up on very quickly was the fact that the FBI are investigating. Yeah. I believe the FAA were telling people as part of their statement, if you want to ask anyone else, speak to the FBI because they're the ones picking this up. Yeah. I mean, that that in itself lends a lot of, hmm, you know, that's that's interesting. They've got themselves involved. Why do you think that might be? I don't, I don't know why the FBI would be involved, but what I keep thinking about is how different it is for, for a pilot in 2021 to just get on the radio and say, hey, we just saw a UFO. You know, it wouldn't be that many years ago when the pilot would be very, very reluctant to call that in and report anything. You know, it's not that long ago that that would have just been something the pilots would have just wash their hands up completely and say, we don't know what it is, but we don't want to talk about it. So the fact that this pilot in 2021, and I know he radioed in as several minutes late, and there's some controversy, I think, over why he waited to call it in, but he did call it in. And that's, I think that alone is kind of an amazing development for ufology. And for so many of us, and I can speak for myself and so many of the listeners that get in touch as well, you just want people to be able to have that sort of conversation. Yeah, We know, and I think most of us are reasonable enough to say that we're not going to have someone come out in the next six months and say, aliens are real and here's where they're from, if that even <laughs> is the case that, of what's happening. But uh-huh. you want whatever is happening, whatever this phenomenon is, that qualified, intelligent airline pilots, military pilots, police witnesses, civilian witnesses can come out and tell these stories and have them reported. And like you say, that that's quite a big deal because, again, even if it was military, you're, you're testing military equipment so near a, like a passenger jet or a you know, civilian, so much can go wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And go, going back slightly to the, the Tic Tac incident, the Nimitz-Princeton from 2004, again, many people say that was you know US government tech being tested, around their own nuclear-powered strike groups, which in itself, if, you know, one thing goes wrong with human error, then that could be catastrophic. Not to say that world governments can't be that stupid because we all know that can be the case, okay? (laughs) Whatever that event may have been. You you mentioned Dr. Hynek would have been, you know, really intrigued with what's happening. Given his involvement, I see a lot of similarities between a Louis Elizondo and a Dr. Hynek, given what they've done for the government, respectively. Uh But... What do you think his thoughts would have been on the U.S. Navy and DOD releasing those three videos or allowing them to be released and declassified? I I have a lot of mixed feelings about all of that, to be perfectly honest, and I and some of my feelings I think wouldn't be very wouldn't be very popular in some UFO circles. I'm always, it's your opinion, and it's it's perfectly valid. Like you I, know, it's it's fair to discuss. I I've always I've always thought it was a little fishy that all of these things seemed to happen all at once. The 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 Nimitz incident, the Tic Tac incident, the videos coming out, um, the military like not challenging the story and sort of letting it get out there. And at almost the exact same time, uh, to the Stars Academy is formed 
and they're the ones who released the video. I just felt like it was just, I'm, I guess I'm suspicious of coincidences. And to me, it just seemed very strangely coincidental that all of these things, these things, ha- these three things just happen to just occur like boom, 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 right in a row. That just makes me a little like, yeah, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt until I learn more about it. And we potentially won't learn more about it because whatever may have happened, those videos being declassified might not have happened in the most, I don't know, kosher way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's talk of Chris Mellon was handed the tapes in a car park, which he's talked about. Um, and no doubt Chris Mellon has a lot of friends in very high places, given he still sits in one of those high places himself. But a lot happened to get to that point. And I, I'd like to go down the route of I'll just be grateful that maybe some people pulled some strings in the background and, and put their necks on the line. But you're quite right to also be potentially wary because I was a big supporter of TTSA. I've got an archive that goes back with me shouting about it and that's not necessarily that they were the saviors of ufology, but I was a big supporter of what they were doing. But I've, I've still kept faith in what Lou Elizondo and you know Chris Mellon are continuing to do. And I know they are still working on various things in the background. And it has been disappointing to see what TTSA have done. Um, I think Tom DeLong himself owes a lot of people uh, an interview with someone whether that's a George Knapp or, you know, I, I would love to speak to Tom on this, but I, I know my audience and it's not Fox News and it's not a George Knapp. And he had investors on a lot of good faith. And I know when you play stocks and you invest, you can't be guaranteed any sort of return. But I think people were sold something that was very quickly changed to be something else. As yes. of, and a lot of people came out and said at the time, didn't they, that TTSA, it just seems like an entertainment company, which is very much the reason Steve Justice... Um, Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon have all left recently and Hal Putoff's walked away as well so they, they have lost all the, the credibility as such in, in the field of ufology and it's now just a case of do you want to buy their books or watch their movies as and when if they even come out as well and a lot of people lost a lot of money so you're, you're right to be wary Mark like, you're right to be wary on that yeah yeah, I mean it's unfortunate, but I agree with you. I think I think the whole thing was a massive bait and switch. They got people excited about one thing and then suddenly changed it into something different and it's the whole thing is pretty bewildering. I'm I'm not really sure what anyone has gained from any of that, unfortunately. Hopefully there's some positive stuff to come in the near future. Well, you uh, know, they've definitely they've definitely broadened the conversation and they've brought new people into the conversation and for that it's a good thing. Absolutely. Where would you put Dr. Heineck in ranking the greats of ufology? <laughs> He's number one, man. That's, That's an easy question. Yeah, that, that was a far, <laughs> far easier question. Uh, so you're putting him right up there. You're, you've got Heineck, you've got Stanton Friedman, potentially one day, possibly a Louis Elizondo, maybe. Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée, yep. I don't know why, but I always, and God, this is awful because I would love to speak to him one day, but I always forget to mention Jack Fillet's name in any podcast I've done. And <laughs> usually, usually my co-host brings it up. It's terrible. Uh-huh. Well, ja- unfortunately, Jacques Fillet doesn't like me very much. So, I, yeah. Is that a story you can tell or is it a reason for oh, it? Oh, well, yeah, there's a, there's, it's a story I can tell. When I was, when I was researching my book, I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of digging into, um, the making of the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, um, you know, the 
huge, huge movie hit, directed, written and directed by Steven Spielberg, came out in 1977. I was really fascinated to learn about Hynek's involvement in that movie um, because obviously they took the title from Hynek's work. He, de- he developed the whole Close Encounters uh, system of classifying UFO events. Um, so in, st- in researching that part of the story, I went through, I, I'm okay. You asked before about how much of a UFO nerd I am, how much of a geek I am. I have boxes and boxes of old UFO magazines in my attic and I dug through the, and I knew I had some gems in there. So I was digging through those when I was researching that part of the book. And I came across one of these magazines from 1977 had an interview with J. Allen Hynek. And there's one point at the interview in which the interviewer says, now I understand that one, that the character of Lacombe of the French ufologist in the movie is actually patterned after a real UFO researcher. And of course, I was expecting Heineck to say, yes, that's based on Jacques Vallée. But instead, Heineck says, yes, that was based on Claude Poher, who is a famous, a, another famous French ufologist. So I put that in the book because that is something that Dr. Heineck said. And I thought that was kind of mind-blowing that everybody thought it was Jacques Vallée, but it was really Claude Poher. Well, Jacques read the book and he was not very pleased with me saying that, and he wanted me to, you know, issue a retraction or have the book reprinted or something to change it to say that he was the inspiration. And I said, well, Jacques, I can't do that. You're asking me to change what Dr. Hynek said. And obviously, I'm, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So it's been a bone of contention. Well, uh, obviously, uh, Jacques himself on the Joe Rogan podcast told that story and it was very much the side that he yes. was the research in question. <laughs> I, I heard that. I heard that podcast. Yeah, definitely. Any chance on that that uh, Dr. Heineck was confused at the time or wrong, or there was maybe a bit of a, a mix or a mashup with it? Uh, I'm guessing maybe only Mr. Spielberg would be able to confirm that now. Or well, I've I have found some corroborating evidence in a couple of different books, actually. Um, and I, uh, boy, if I had known we were going to talk about this today, I would have, I would have looked up those books so I could cite them directly. And I'm, and I'm not thinking of the book's titles right now, but I, I, let's just put it this way. I am not the only, if I can call myself a journalist, I'm, I'm not the only writer who has, um, I'm not sure the right way to say it. Other writers have mentioned the same fact that it was not Jacques Vallée who inspired the Lacombe character. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. It, well, there, yeah, there, that. there are two other writers. Starting, yeah, I don't want to yeah, be starting we, anything here. but We don't want to start, you know, what do the kids call them? Beefs uh, yeah, from 40 yeah. or 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, cause, be, yeah. Uh, really, because really the bad guy in my book is Carl Sagan, not Jacques Vallée. And again, that's one reason people should should go and buy the book. And the link will be in the description as well. I want to ask you, though, um, again, we're talking about sensationalism in movies and television shows. I really, really enjoyed the Project Blue Book series on sci-fi. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, I went into it expecting to watch the first episode based on UFOs, knowing about Dr. Hynek, but knowing it was highly dramatised and sensationalised and very much it's the stories were based on events. You talk about the, the Kellyville event, 
that is told in one of the episodes, but very much the incident had happened that night before. Dr. Heinick turns up the next day, speeding along in his car, and he gets right involved. And, you know, it's, so, yeah, it's very, very sensational. But it's it still gets potentially new eyes. I was really pleasantly surprised, though, that I watched that full first series. Then when the second came out, I watched it week on week on week as it happened as well. And not many shows do that for me, genuinely, uh, in the world of TV in the last 10 years. Did you see the series and what were your thoughts on it? I watched the first two episodes, um, and I had some dealings with the producers of the show prior to the show uh, going into production. Uh, we heard about the we heard about the production. My agent and I were in contact with the producers and said, "Hey, if you're going to do a show about Heineck, here's the book. Here's what you should base it on." And they came back to us and said, "Yeah, that's great," but they said we have our own dramatic approach to the material, so we're good, thanks. So that was the end of that. So I was left wondering okay, what's their dramatic approach? I'm real curious to see what this is going to be. So, so of course, I was curious, and I watched the first two episodes, and there was a moment, I'm pretty sure it was the second episode, there was a moment when uh, the character of Hynek's wife asks him, well, Alan, why, why do you want to do this work for the Air Force? This sounds like a loser. Why do you want to do this? And, and the Hynek character says, well, he says, there are three reasons, really. He's like, one of them, is I can pick up some extra cash. That's always a good thing. Second of all, it's not going to interrupt with my teaching schedule at all. That's another good thing. And he said, thirdly, though, the most important point is I want the recognition. And when that actor said that line, I just groaned because that is absolutely the absolute extreme opposite of the kind of person Dr. Heineck was. He was not in it for the attention. He was not in it for the recognition. In fact, he would have hated the recognition back in the late 1940s, and he did in some respects because it was a loser. It was a losing subject for a young professor, a young scientist who's trying to establish himself in the scientific community to be tied to the UFO phenomenon, a subject of mass ridicule in the scientific community. So when that character says, I want the recognition, I just thought, well, if if they can't even get this basic fact of the real man right, they're not going to get anything right. And so I stopped watching it, except I did watch one episode in the second season that was dealing with Jesse Marcel and the Roswell case. And I, I watched about 10 minutes of it. And honestly, there's a scene where this, this evil uh, Air Force general has a couple of military policemen beat up Jesse Marcel. And I just thought, this is the most awful thing I have ever seen. I just, I couldn't take it. So that's my history with the Blue Book series. So I did not shed a tear when that show was canceled. Even not knowing the extensive background of Dr. Heineck and, you know, everything he was involved in, I, I could tell those shows were 90, 95% highly Hollywood dramatizations and they had the whole Russian spy theme going through. And oh my unless God, that's something you, unless you want to tell me right here, right now, that that is something that happened, that his wife was no. just almost by a blonde no. a Russian spy. But no. I, again, no, Mrs. Heineck was never seduced by a lesbian Russian spy. It never ever happened. In fact, that brings up another funny story. Now, this is interesting. Talk about a talk about a cover up. I encountered when I was researching the book. There was one moment in particular. I was contacted by someone whose name was not familiar to me. I didn't know who this person was. Uh, 
but he introduced himself as a former colleague of Dr. Hynek's, and he wanted to talk to me. So, of course, you know, I'm researching Hynek's biography. I was very interested in talking to this gentleman and finding out what he had to say. So we talk on the phone and he's telling me, well, he was involved with the Center for UFO Studies for just a matter of a couple of years in the mid-1980s, which would have been Hynek's last years. And he said, here's the thing nobody will tell you about. He said, when Dr. Hynek moved to, when Dr. Hynek retired and moved to Arizona in 1984, he did not take his wife with him. He took along a beautiful young co-ed when he moved to Arizona and he left his wife, Mimi in Chicago. And I really couldn't believe what I was hearing because I had never come across anything like that before. And I said, well, you know, thank you for the information. I will look into that. And I got off the phone thinking that is the weirdest story. None of it rings true, but I did due diligence. I talked with a couple of Heineck's, actual college, people who people who worked with Heineck back in that period of time and said, somebody told me this story. Do you think there's any truth to it? And everybody I shared this with just laughed and said, are you kidding? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So what was this guy up to? Was he trying to feed me disinformation? Was he hoping that I would believe him and print that story in my book? I don't know. I, I have... I don't remember the guy's name or phone number. I couldn't remember it in a million years. So I'll never know what this guy was up to, but I always thought that was extremely fishy that this person would contact me and be so helpful by giving me this completely made up story. Maybe his next phone call was to the producers of Project Blue Book to see me <laughs> and they wove it into the narrative of the, the show they put out. But like I say, I think you may be onto something. You you were so close to Dr. Heineck as a person as, as anyone could be writing about him and knowing about his life that I can understand your, your thoughts and feelings on that. But I, I found it a really guilty pleasure and I enjoyed it. And <laughs> yeah, people looking for, for realism in this subject. I know so many people enjoy this podcast because look at a serious objective, look at the subject and but yeah, I, I had a real guilty pleasure for that show. Um, but I want to ask you one more question about Dr. Hynek before we touch on UFO Witness, the show. Okay. Looking now, we're almost 35 years on from, from Dr. Hynek passing, and so much of his work is now 40, 50, 60 years in the past. Do you think he would be satisf satisfied with his legacy as we stand in 2021? I think he would. I think that... Um and I quote, and I talked to his son Paul uh, for the book, and he he said that towards the end of his dad's life, he was a somewhat disappointed man because he had bit off something so big that he couldn't possibly chew it. He 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 could never get to where he wanted to be um, with the UFO phenomenon. And I and I and I believe Paul. I believe that's true. I think it's it, and it makes perfect sense that he would have been dealing with a certain amount of disappointment towards the end of his life. But I think if he was back now again, I think he would quickly rebound from that. I think he would quickly realize that he has basically, that's why the title of the book says How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. I think that he alone sort of made the term UFO a part of everyone's vocabulary. I think Heineck made UFOs a part of the fabric of our culture in a way that no one else ever has and no one else ever will. And I think that he has a lot to be proud of just for that simple fact. 
you know, I, I told people when I first started writing this book, a couple of people would kind of give me the side eye and be like, you, you want to write about what? And, and I'd say, I want to write a UFO book that you don't have to hide from people. You know, I want to write a UFO book that if you're reading it on the beach on vacation and a friend walks up to you, you're not going to stuff it in your duffel bag or slide it under your beach blanket so they don't see it. I want it to be a UFO book that's, you know, accessible to a broad audience. I hope I've succeeded with that. Um, but I think that I think that Heineck would would feel the same way. I think he would be proud of the fact that he's sort of brought UFOs out of the shadows. And I would agree with that. And I would encourage people to find out themselves a little bit more about the man, uh, Close Encounters Man, how one man made the world believe in UFOs is available still. Where is the best place to buy the book just before we talk about UFO Witness? Well, you can get it online at Amazon, either as a paperback uh, or an ebook. It's going to be recorded as an audiobook sometime this month. I don't know the exact dates, um, but I'll be I'll be real excited when that when that date hits. I'm very excited that it's going to be an audiobook. Um, and of course, you can find it at independent booksellers uh, anywhere. I, I've every time I go to a new bookstore, I automatically you know I look for my book immediately. And it's the sad thing is, in my opinion, the book could have been could have been shelved with the science books or it could have been shelved with the biography books, but instead it's always in the farthest, darkest back corner of the bookstore on this lonely little bookshelf with all the UFO books and the paranormal books. But you know, that's life, but that's, that's where you can find it. Order it on Amazon um, or go to your local independent bookseller. Uh, Can I just tell one more story about the project Blue book TV series though? Just made me think of this. So I was, when the sh- when the show first premiered, I was very vocal about my dislike for it in my blog. And out of the blue, I get an email from a gentleman at History Channel, History Networks, saying, hey, would you shut up? Would you stop criticizing our show? I mean, a really angry, angry email from this guy. And, and I wrote back and said, well, you know, your shows get everything wrong. Why would you be surprised that I'd be angry about it? And he's like, well, you're just not being fair. And you really should just pipe down and stop complaining. And I said, look, look at it from my point of view. I said, ever since your show premiered, I've been having friends and colleagues and family members calling me up or texting me or emailing me saying, oh, Mark, is that your show? Is that based on your book? Do you have anything to do with that? And I said, it's endlessly embarrassing for me to have to explain to people, no, that's not my book. And as soon as I, and that is very true. That's exactly what was happening to me. And after I told this guy that story, he he was like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I never thought of it that way. I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for seeing it my way for a moment so you could understand one reason why I'm upset about it. I don't want to be associated with that show. Um, and as a punchline to that story, I was teaching uh, I was teaching a TV writing course at DePaul University at the time. And I told the guy, I said, hey, you can make it up to me by doing a guest lecture from one of my classes online. And he did that. So he actually got online with my students one night and did a Q&A about uh, producing, producing scripted reality TV. That was a real interesting discussion. That, that's fair that he got involved as well. And, and listen, and that kind of segues nicely on to you weren't happy with one TV show, so why not get involved with your own? Uh, you've done quite a bit of researching alongside Ben Hansen and Discovery's, Discovery Plus. I keep saying Discovery, but 
Discovery Plus is the new branding for the, the channel over here in the UK as well. Uh-huh. Uh, UFO Witness. How did you get involved in the project? And tell the listeners who might not have seen it yet a little bit about it. Okay. Um, well, right around the time that my book was published in, in mid-2017, we had a lot of interest from TV and movie producers um, about buying the film or TV rights to the book. Uh, none of those deals came through. But after a while, I remembered one of the first companies that had contacted us, a production company in New York called Anomaly Entertainment. I thought, well, I haven't heard from those guys for a while. Maybe I should circle back and see if they're still interested. So I did. And they were. They were still interested. And so we got talking and I said, look, here's my angle on a great TV show. I said, you know, I just wrote this book about Dr. Hynek. What you may not know is that I have tons of unused research from that book project, all sorts of really fantastic UFO stories that I wasn't able to include in the book. What if we did a TV show centered on those lesser known UFO cases um, that, that had to be edited out of my book? And they liked the idea. So we started talking and they started talking to people at the, at, uh, the travel channel. Um, and over the course of time, and this, this whole process took literally about two years from the first time we approached Travel Channel to the point where we finally went into production. And, um, <clears throat> but everybody was interested in the course of developing the show. Of course, the format changed. Ben came in. And that's another thing. First, it was just going to be me on the show. Then it was going to be a whole team of UFO researchers. We had audition tapes from all sorts of well-known UFO personalities. Some people I'm sure you would recognize submitted audition tapes. Uh, that was kind of fun. We had a lot of interesting people to choose from. Uh, in the end, Travel Channel said, you know, we got this guy, Ben Hansen, who's really popular right now. And we were like, if he's popular and brings in the viewers, that's great. Let's work with Ben. So that's how Ben got involved, basically, because he was Travel Channel's guy and, you know, and he's great. So, but having Ben uh, as part of the equation kind of gave us this cool new angle for the show. And that was that we would compare a historic UFO event with a more modern UFO event, looking for parallels, similarities, trends, whatever. Um, so we started developing the show that way. And it just sort of, it's, it, it developed naturally that I would sort of handle the historic case um, because I'd, I had already done all this research for the Heineck book and that Ben would investigate the modern case. So that's the format the show has taken. And I think it works really well. I think it's a really fun approach to the phenomenon. And when you start looking at things from that historical perspective, from, you know, look at, let's look at a case that took place in, you know, 1951 and compare it to a case that took place in 2001. It's really, it's really, it's really fascinating to see what kinds of similarities there are. Not everybody may see the similarities. And sometimes maybe we're stretching a point a little because not every glowing white UFO looks like a Tic Tac but they're still glowing white UFOs that exhibit similar behavior. So there is definitely a similarity there that's, you know, that's worth looking at, worth considering. So that's how the whole thing came to be. How do you feel the tone of the show compares to others like it? I I would say, and I'm going to use the word unfortunately, even though I watch this show from time to time, not more recently, but Ancient Aliens is the biggest (laughs) UFO alien program in the world. And, Uh that seems to still be how the general public look at and react to the topic. You know, yeah. it's the, the famous aliens meme, the Giorgio Sucalis, um, you know, picture or online, right? And it still gets, there's, there's some 
I would again say, if I'm just picking numbers off my head here, maybe 10% of the show has some really interesting concepts and content. And then there's a whole load of sensationalism thrown in there where they just start picking because this shape looks like this shape. And then the ancient Atlanteans would talk and it was like, oh, and it just gets, <laughs> it goes from, instead of going from A to B to C, it goes uh-huh. from A to B to Z and yeah. then back to T and then over to W. And it's like, <laughs> right, okay. How, how do you feel the tone of the show compares? Well, our, <laughs> that's, that's a really funny thought. I will say right up front that working with Travel Channel, one of their one of their big pushes with the show was make it spooky. Okay, that's that's one of their that's one of their rules. Make it spooky. So in our recreations of the UFO events, you know, there's you can see there's a there's a very del- deliberate attempt to make the to make the event the encounter as spooky as we can make it. That's, okay. inter- that's an interesting take, yeah. And, and I think it's a take that a lot of UFO shows, you know, just nat- naturally take. So. <clears throat> So there's that with our show. Um, and I've never, it's been a long time since I've watched Ancient Aliens, but I have seen it in the past. I don't remember it being particularly spooky at all. Um, I mean, part of me, part of me enjoys the show. I'll be honest with you, because I'm interested in all, all those different things they throw into the mix. I'm interested in all those things as well. I don't necessarily see the value in mixing them all together into one show, I don't know that that works very well. I don't think it really does. But I do enjoy the fact that they bring so many different ideas and and weird stories into the mix. I don't know. That, I, that's my I, take I on it. Judge. Listen, I've just told you, Mark, that I enjoyed Project Blue Book on sci-fi. <laughs> which is, it, it would be very, very remiss of me to to talk about ancient aliens negatively, but then say, but Project Blue Book was, you know, a almost <laughs> biographical account of what happened in those times, and it certainly wasn't. So if it gets people's eyes on the subject that whether me and you like these shows isn't really relevant, but the general public who these shows are aimed for, because people like us and people interested in this topic will tend to go and watch them at some point anyway, or a large portion will. But the general public, the mainstream, which is what every TV show wants to get, new eyes, new viewers... If a few people get involved and stick around and then one of those listens to my podcast, one of them buys your book, one of them goes and downloads The Phenomenon, a couple of them go and watch this podcast, listen to this, download Shadows magazine, it's done its job because it's got new people involved in the topic. You mentioned earlier when you talked about the American Airlines case that you've seen like a quite a positive shift in and that, that sort of stuff being reported. Do you think shows like this have come along then at a good time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've been um, there's part of my part of my access to the Kufos files. As as a part of that, I've gotten to be I wouldn't say I'm included, but I'm sort of like a trial member. There's a group of ufologists. I refer to them as the Council of Elders. Um, there are a bunch of very 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 wise uh, people who um, they're sort of like Dr. Hynix and jo- and Dr. Valet's Invisible College. They're kind of a, a modern version of that. Um, and they get together a couple times a year and just swap UFO stories. And I've been lucky enough to be invited to these gatherings, um, and, and have been able to, you know, build some good relationships and get access to, to more archives beyond the Kufos archives. Um, ah, 
Oh my gosh. I lost. <laughs> You're going to have to edit this. I've, lo- I've lost my train of thought. Oh no. But here, but I'm on an email chain with all of these people, right? Okay. And it's a very, very, it's a very long list of email addresses. I, I've lost track of who all's involved with this. But their conversations, they have a, this constant ongoing conversation going about latest UFO reports. And just watching their analysis of this American Airlines incident just over the past few days has been really fascinating. They're going in, they're looking at the they're looking at the radar reports. They're trying to find out if, you know, one theory that's been floated is that this thing that passed the the commercial airliner was a Learjet that, you know, maybe wasn't following the right flight path. Well, these guys are going through the radar reports and saying, no, because of this and this and this, it couldn't possibly have been a, a Learjet. So then what is it? If this case is, is, is driving that kind of a conversation among these UFO researchers who I admire and respect so much, that says a lot to me. That tells me that this case, like I said before, I think it has legs. I think I think that there's going to be a lot more learned about what happened in the sky over New Mexico. And just the fact that it's New Mexico, the epicenter of UFO activity in the United States for like the last 70 years, just the fact that it took place in the skies over New Mexico alone just blows my mind. So, yeah, I think this is a big deal. We're just missing some crash retrieval program being announced. Uh, uh, Now you're, you're bringing up a whole different subject. (laughs) <laughs> potentially um listen let's get on to some listener questions mark because i've had a lot sent through to me and as we'll be doing now on the podcast folks uh and i hope people appreciate this i'll be going through some of the listener questions but then over on patreon there will be a small section uh, exclusive audio last week it was about 15 minutes where we'll have a little more chat with mark and answer a few more of the listener questions as well because um spoiler you know behind the scenes here some listeners send in four five six seven questions i can't <laughs> get all those each into the show i'd be answering 50 or 60 or asking them but i hold some of those back so don't worry folks nothing's being hidden as such behind a paywall it's just a few extra questions to put to the guests as well but i appreciate everyone's uh kind of uh, understanding that except one person on reddit who wasn't happy um so i'm going to Uh-oh. start off oh uh, yeah yeah reddit's a great place uh, the listeners know as well I've, I've taken to actually quite enjoying um the abuse um so mark first question was from erin erin says after hearing david marlow talk on the last podcast about finding loads of original documents in a rubbish bin she is curious about how ufo history and research is to be salvaged and preserved for posterity. Oh my gosh. As Heineck's biographer, what does Mark think, or what access did you have in terms of papers or documents? We know some of that. How did you get access to it? Who controls the materials now? And how do we make sure, more importantly, that important historical evidence doesn't disappear in the future? That is such an important question. Thank you for asking that, Aaron. In, in my case, it came about very easily. I was living in Chicago at the time. The Kufos archives were in Chicago. Um, and so when I gained access it, within a couple of miles of where, where I lived literally. So I would just drive five miles from where I lived and be in the middle of the Kufos files, the Heineck files. Um, but what I quickly learned was that, um, there are mass amounts of records that are not very well preserved, not very well protected. So the Kufos archive, I would visit over and over again with all of Heineck's personal papers was in so, uh, Mark Rodiger's basement. Okay. There was another house in Chicago, uh, Mary's house. I can't remember Mary's last name, Karsten, I think. 
but she was also part of CUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies. She had an entire basement filled with file cabinets, and those were all the UFO case reports, okay? So that was a separate entity from the, the archives that I was using uh, for the Heineck material. Mary's house had thousands and thousands of CUFOS case reports, which I also dug through a lot of for my book. Um, in addition to that, there is a quasi-Kufos archive in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I also did a great deal of research for my book. There is also, and that again, is someone's, it's a basement of just a residential house, so it's not climate controlled. It's not fire protected in any way. It's just sitting there vulnerable to the ages and vulnerable to the elements, which is really pretty heartbreaking. So there are those three locations. On the plus side, Heineck went to university in Chicago and taught in Chicago. So there were huge archives of his, uh, his career as a phys as a uh, astronomer and professor that were available to me at Northwestern university and at the university of Chicago. Now those records are kept in safe, secure places uh, so those documents are very well preserved, very well looked after. And, and I found an amazing wealth of material there too. So that was basic. That's the, that's sort of the whole assortment of Heineck files. You've got these two universities that are taking very, very good care of them. And then you've got, and I'm not saying that the Kufos people aren't taking care of the files. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that they don't have the resources. They don't have the funds. They don't have the manpower until recently to to really protect and preserve these documents in the way they deserve to be protected. That's where David Marler comes in. He, he um, and I can't remember who he's working with. I, I'm foggy on the name now. I can't remember. But they have retrieved, as I understand it, they have retrieved. So I mentioned, I mentioned the file cabinets full of case reports in Mary's basement. Somewhere within the last couple of years, they were moved out of Mary's basement and into a rented storage container, okay, a storage unit, basically a block away from Mark Rodiger's house. So they were physically closer to the main archives, but still, you know, locked up in a different, in a different container. Those files, as I understand it, those are the files that have now been moved down to Arizona where David Marler is digitally recording them. And I am thrilled that that's happening. I'm really thrilled. It's a huge, it's an unimaginably huge job. I can't tell you how many documents I scanned at these archives while working on my book, but what I did was just a fraction of the amount of work that is being done right now, preserving those case files. And we're all very, very fortunate that that's being done right now. It's a massive job and it's going to take some real dedication and, and some real commitment to, to carry through. And I think they're going to. Yeah. David's got some help uh, and, possibly that's not spoiling this uh, i spoke with david after the recording and sometime in the summer when he has that help some of those people will be coming on the podcast with david to discuss digitization and you know what they're finding what they're going through mm -hmm. i like to let david said he's finding so many things just like going through some of dr heineck's documents and how on some of the reports there for example has the official military explanation of one case was fireball 
and uh, David uh, says that Dr. Hynek's got a red pen that he goes through them in and scores out fireball and writes unidentified uh-huh. and it, it changes things on the files that he obviously wasn't happy with the yeah. so just little things like that he's, he's keeping note of and writing down so that'll be something we pick up later on in the year which I'm, oh, yeah. I'm excited for as well but yeah it's a huge topic but actually important and a great question Erin um, next one is from Fred Fred says there are, there are rumours the famous bets sphere ended up in the possession of Dr. Hynek. Is there any truth in that? Somewhere I read Hynek's son found something that could have been the sphere in their home in the basement, and I'm curious if that ever happened. Have you heard about the Bet Sphere? No, I confess I do not know about the Bet Sphere. I don't know what that is. Bet Sphere, I'm not entirely up on it myself, but it is a a small ball, and I've got the details here because of people who know so much information. Apparently, a little mysterious sphere, metal, around 8 inches in diameter, weighing £22, and there are a whole load of conspiracy theories uh, and ideas that may involve this anyway. But if you've not heard about it, that's that's fair, but that's maybe something people can go and check out themselves. Thanks for sending it in there, Fred. Um, Graham, he wants to know... Um, uh, speaking about Dr. Hynek's efforts to educate the public about UFOs in the 70s, he used to tour around in a van with flying saucers on the side and an array of antennae on the top. He remembers seeing it once on the 401 just outside of Toronto. Do you have any idea what ever happened to that van? <laughs> no, I, I love this question because it, it appeals to me so much because I really want it to be true because it's such a great image. I don't know. I've never heard anything about it. You know, off the top of my head, it sounds much more showy and flamboyant than something that Heineck would have done himself, but I could certainly see some of Heineck's groupies doing so, you know, maybe following him around on his speaking tour in this van. I just, I don't know. I, I've never heard of it before, so I can't really comment on it, but, it, but the whole idea of it just makes me smile. So it's a good thing. Could be where he kept the blonde coeds. Um, <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. But yeah, no, that's a really interesting one. And Graham, get in touch with a lot more information on that as well. If, if you have seen or heard any more about it, I'll, I'll forward that on to Mark um, or get in touch with Mark yourself on Twitter. Um, Barry asks, uh, if I can ask you, Mark, about Heineck's thoughts on the infamous Men in Black. I, I never came across any talk of his about the Men in Black, honestly, which is disappointing because that's one of those aspects of the phenomenon that, you know, really really appeals to me. It really tickles me just, just thinking that the men in black may be real. Um, and that they, pl- and I don't know why it tickles me so much be- because they're actually evil and menacing. They're a bad thing. Um, but I don't remember, I never came across anything from Heineck's writings or his notes talking about the men in black. You know, there were, there were just certain th- things that Heineck just naturally shied away from simply because they just brought up too many, uncomfortable questions that he just couldn't answer if so, you know he was and he was very good about that if he had nothing of value to say on the sub- subject he just wouldn't address it at all so i think the men in black probably fall into that category for him yeah barry follows up um, just saying he was reading about a case in mexico where a pilot de los santos had quite a few interactions with them around the time of being interviewed by dr heinick this led to the pilot swerving a second meeting with dr heinick after being stopped in the hotel by an alleged MIB. That's Ooh. according to the pilot. But again, that's not necessarily something Dr. Heinrich's had involvement in. Um, 
that is something that's woven into the story throughout the Blue Book series. So potentially that's something uh, that okay. up okay. on as well. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Thanks for that one, Barry. Um, Wenger knows, uh, Arsenal fan who, who likes ufology on Twitter, mentions in the, the episode The Mothership Returns, Ben Hansen talks to the former Arizona state councillor, and she said the guy who took a clear video of the UFO vanished and was never heard from again. Did you dig any deeper into this, or were you able to? He found it fascinating, and they would love to track the guy down. I have not researched the case. It is a really fascinating story. And it, and. You know, when when you see the woman on screen talking about it, to me, she comes across as a very credible witness. She certainly doesn't have any reason to be making a story like that up or to be stretching the truth at all. So I think it's a story that's worth investigating, but I have not been able to do any of that myself. That's fair. And Dave, he asks that um, he, he feels Dr. Heideck had a number of turning points in his journey on UFOs, which saw him move from a more sceptical to firm believer in UFOs and what the phenomenon may be to almost a UFO activist. What do you think were potentially a couple of the most pivotal points of transformation for him? Well, that's I'm I'm really glad that question came up because it's it's really imp- an important part of understanding who Heineck was. Um, his his transformation, and again, this is one of the things I I was wrong about when I when I went into you know starting to research the book. I, I bought into the old story that Heineck had you know had this sudden drastic change of mind. It just like he woke up one day and you know Eureka, he realized UFOs were real. It didn't happen that way at all. I found out when I started doing the research. It was a long, slow, painful process for him to do that turnabout. When he first started working for the Air Force, he was very skeptical. He thought UFOs were just a dumb fad. He thought it would die out over time. But he was happy to make a little extra money analyzing the UFO reports, right? But at the end of Project Sign, his first assignment, he there were 20% of the cases that he couldn't explain. And at the time, he thought, well, I guess I'm doing pretty well. I, I can explain 80% of the cases. I must be doing you know a pretty good job. Well, when he was brought back into the study by the Air Force a couple of years later, he noticed that after several years, that 20% ratio was still holding. There were still 20% of cases over the last several years that couldn't be explained. So Heineck started thinking, huh, that's weird that there's that much consistency in the unexplained cases. Maybe we should be paying more attention to those unexplained cases. And in my book, I, I go into some of those specific three or four of those cases from from Heineck's original work on Project Sign that really, really puzzled him and baffled him. And he just couldn't figure out what was going on in those reports. So that's what triggered that's what triggered the transformation. By the time of the swamp gas case in 1966, that transformation was pretty much complete because it was that that experience where he said, you know what? The Air Force is wrong. I'm not going to stick up for them anymore. This is a real thing and I'm gonna I'm going to devote my energies to studying it. Awesome. We will finish up on the quick fire round uh, just to get your thoughts. (laughs) It can be one word, one sentence, or a little more than that on each of these topics. Some of we've touched on very briefly. So the first one would be Bob Lazar. Oh, boy. Um, Puzzling. I want to ask more, but I'll leave that for the next time. (laughs) Uh, Area 51. Love it. Oh. Oh, do you want to add more to that? I'll just add a little more to that. 
I have an uncle who was stationed at Area 51 when he was in the Air Force in the early 1950s. And when he found out I was writing this book about Dr. Heineck, he just took me aside at a family reunion. He said, Mark, you know, I worked at Area 51. And he just looked at me straight in the face and he said, there aren't any UFOs there. Very matter-of-factly. And I was like, that's what they want you to think, Uncle Bob. Yeah. He, he just didn't back down. So that's my Area 51 story. I think it's intriguing. I have tried to visit. I've gotten to the fence. Of course, haven't gotten in or I would have been shot by now. Yeah. But, but I have been there and it's fascinating. I think there's some real weird history there. I also love the fact you have an Uncle Bob who worked at Area 51 as well. <laughs> I know. It's so random. Uh, next one would be Louise Elizondo. Skeptical. And he would want you to be as well. Uh, <laughs> Walker Ranch. Hmm. Not necessarily UFO related. I, I'll, I'll just add to that. Do you think, though, that the phenomenon itself could almost come under an umbrella of, you mentioned Bigfoot earlier, could all these things be related in some way? I think you could make that case. You could make that argument. Yeah. Okay. I won't, though. I'll let other people do that for me. <laughs> uh, do you prefer UFO or UAP? UFO. Yeah, most. I don't think I've had anyone yet go for UAP. And the last one, what does disclosure mean to you? Ancient history. Interesting response. <laughs> Mark, if you can just wrap up for us, how can people follow you, get in touch, and of course, just again, remind folk how they can buy the book. Uh -huh. Well, my blog, which I haven't written on much lately, but it's still there, is called highstrangenessufo.com. So you can get all my opinions on a lot of different things on the on the blog. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Mark O'Connell underscore one. That's all lowercase. And O'Connell is with two N's and two L's. That's where I'm most active with my UFO talk. But I also talk a lot about Star Trek and writing and various other things on Twitter. Uh, the book, again, as you've mentioned once or twice, The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs, available at fine booksellers everywhere. And as I said, soon to be released as an audiobook. Not read by a dodgy Scottish accent like I've got, folks. <laughs> Don't worry about that. I'm sure it'll be someone with a bit of gravitas to their voice. Um, listen, if you would like to hear a little more from Mark and myself, please consider following us over on to patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast. I've got a few more questions for Mark, and I'll be asking him first off a lot more on that Star Trek episode he was involved in as well. So please consider that as well. Mark, it's been great talking to you. Same here. I've enjoyed it. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit.